1: Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. I'm Sharon Hennepin. I am a 24 year breast cancer survivor, a certified life coach, and the author of my new book, Thriving
2: Beyond Cancer. And my name is Becky Olson. I'm a four time, nearly 22 year survivor of advanced stage breast cancer. I'm also a motivational speaker, a speaker mentor, and the author of The Hat That Saved My Life. Sharon and I also happen to be the co founders of Breast Friends.
1: And, you know, today I wanted to talk about, um, before we get our uh, radio guest on the line, um, friendship as my inspirational moment. I, right before the the show started, I was writing a birthday card to my dearest, oldest friend um, and realized, oh my gosh, we have known each other over 50 years. (laughs) Wow. And I'm like... Yeah, I was like, "Wow, that is a long time to know someone, to stay in touch with them." And and luckily, she doesn't live too far away, so I can actually see her every once in a while. So it's just, um, you know, I just wanted to make sure that everybody. I I'm very grateful for my friendships, Becky. You're one of those very amazing friendships. <laughs> we've been. I was trying to think about we we've known each other close. To, to thirty years, probably twenty-five. Yeah, and, and
2: ninety-one.
1: Yeah, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, these longtime friendships are so precious to us, but also these brand new ones that I meet. Several um, women. Uh, sometimes every day, uh, uh, that that are going through this journey, and it's amazing how those new friendships can bud into lasting, long friendships as well, as long as we allow our hearts
2: to be open. Yeah, that's true. And you know, one thing about friendships when we talk to people that sometimes really don't have any friends. What's that saying that we, that we tell them? And we didn't make it up. It's an old phrase, but to have a friend, sometimes you need to be a friend. Absolutely. So if you find yourself without friends, think about how you can be one to somebody. And it's amazing what will follow. That's, that's good, Sharon. I don't know who this 50-year-old friend of yours is, but I imagine he'll
3: tell <laughs> you've, me later. You've,
1: <laughs> probably, you've probably met her, Lynn. Do you remember Lynn? I do.
2: Oh,
3: yeah. 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 Wow.
1: She, she and I met the very first day of high school. Isn't that funny? Wow. Long, long time, you are
2: aging yourself right now. I know, I know, but
1: that's okay, it's a reality I can't change. So,
2: true (laughs) enough,
1: let's just jump right into our topic today, which is communication and connection for families coping with cancer. And uh, we will be talking about uh, palliative care and how to support a a family facing end-of-life issues our guest is elizabeth doherty elizabeth is a social worker and an educator with extensive experience supporting children youth and adults facing complex illness uncertainty and grief she has a community-based private practice and offers telephone and online counseling across canada so welcome elizabeth
4: Thank you so much, and, and thank you for our new connection, Sharon and Becky. I'm
2: happy to be on the absolutely. show. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, it's that's our great. pleasure. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're from Canada, right? I mean, you are in Canada? Yeah, just outside mm-hmm. of Toronto. I oh, think you're wonderful. our second Canadian guest that we have, but we have some listeners there, so this is cool.
1: Absolutely.
3: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so why don't we start by having you kind of introduce yourself to our audience and kind of what you do and just kind of a, you know, basic outline of what you do.
4: Sure. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So I know you mentioned the term palliative care and and actually that's what I specialize in. So I'm a palliative care psychosocial clinician and educator, which really as a social worker, it means caring for the person who uh, has the experience of living with an illness um, and caring for their families as well. So I've been working as a clinician and as an educator for almost 20 years. Um, I support people of all ages, whether that may be a child or an adult diagnosed with cancer or any other complex illness. Um, And that means supporting them following diagnosis throughout their treatment, into remission, at end of life, and into bereavement. Um, But in addition to my clinical work, I'm also honored to be an adjunct assistant clinical professor with the Department of Family Medicine with the Division of Palliative Care here at McMaster University, and I'm also a clinical director for Camp Aaron Hamilton, which is actually a free bereavement camp for children and teens.
1: Wow! Well, well, you your thank school. you for t- taking the time to be with us. Yeah. That's, that's quite <laughs> I'm a. Happiness. Wondering where you
2: less. found it. was <laughs> <laughs> a girl.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, how did you get into this field? Because I know it's a really specialized field.
4: Um. It, it. I guess it is. But from my perspective, I think it's the way all of healthcare could be um, practiced, uh, and and certainly, you know, like like the term cancer has so many myths and misconceptions. So do does palliative care. Um, but but for me personally, uh, my first degree was actually in history, um, and, and it was funny, as I was coming to graduation, I realized that history wasn't what actually motivated me, although I love the stories that... Uh, you know, I found it interesting. It was the people behind those stories. So I went on to study community work, which is actually like grassroots social work. And after Thank finishing you. my diploma, I went on to finish my undergrad and graduate degrees in social work. Um, and it was during that time studying that I worked and I volunteered and interned in a multitude of settings, um, supporting those facing domestic violence, working with men in maximum security prison, caring for kids and teens in the child welfare system, um, working to empower people in addiction treatment supporting people who were socially isolated or homeless in downtown Toronto. And then I finally ended up volunteering in a crisis intervention unit in the east end of Toronto. And it was there that I met families facing complex health crises. So basically witnessing people facing illness, dying and death, and everything came together for me there, realizing that, I mean, illness, grief, and loss don't discriminate. It impacts everyone. Um, And seeing that suffering in front of me occurring so frequently, a lot of it could be prevented or avoided, but even certainly where there was suffering that couldn't be changed or fixed, it was just I knew that's where I wanted to work and practice and do all I could to support people facing a health crisis at any point in their lives.
2: Wow. It's tough work. You know, we don't don't do it to that degree where we're really not into the end of life things and all that, but you know, it's hard work and, and to keep it up and be able to do it day in and day out is, is really quite quite a blessing. For us that you that well, you do for, that,
1: and for your patients and yeah. and their families, mm-hmm. absolutely, because yeah. that is that is really tough work. I know I've looked a little bit into compassion fatigue, and I'm sure you know it's important for you to take really good care of yourself so you can continue to do this work. Because boy oh boy, that that can take its toll for sure. Mm-hmm.
4: You know, it's interesting. I know um, my friends and family often refer to me as, as "sunshine," and and it's um, uh-huh. it's not to make light of what I do, but certainly because for almost 20 years, well, 25 if you count the years of volunteering and crisis intervention. Um, witnessing people who were experiencing loss, whether that was, you know, the loss of a breast following a mastectomy or the loss of a job because of their illness or the loss of the ability to walk or eat their favorite food or spend time with their family. It's made me incredibly aware of the remarkable privilege and honor I have every day of waking up and breathing and spending time with my family. So self-care for me is part of living and breathing every day. Um, My work has made me acutely aware of the privileges I have. So it's just part of who I am. (laughs) It's part of how I live every day. I
2: love that. I I I want to say something. When you talk in your voice, I can't see your face right now because we're doing this you know, <laughs> online. But when I hear your voice, you you are sunshine. I can hear it in your voice. I'll bet you got a smile on your face right now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so, well, so I, I can see it. I ag- I agree with your with your mom. <laughs> so so,
1: so I, I I need I need to tell you something too because it's really funny because um I have that gift of positivity and it sounds like you do as well, and <clears throat> unfortunately sometimes um those gifts that we are given um we sometimes Forget, or we take take them for granted. And I remember one time actually taking a test, and positivity came out as my number one strength, and I got irritated about it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do with that? Well, guess what? Breast friends was was established not too long after that, and uh, that's what I do with it. So you're right, you know, dealing with, you know, patients that are that are facing some pretty Um, scary stuff, um, whether it's end of life or a cancer diagnosis or another kind of uh, uh, major illness. Yeah, it's really scary stuff. And thank goodness we have some people that have this sunny disposition.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we all need them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We do, we do, absolutely. So what would you say your greatest challenges um, are when you face this kind of work?
4: Um, I, I mean they' there I think like everyone's role right there's a multitude of challenges you face and some of them are you know built into the system some of them are cultural um, and some of them come down just to you know trying to access care or support, you know, people and families in the process. Um, right. for, for me, certainly a lot sense. of it is, is demystifying palliative care, um, you know, and, and trying to make sure people better understand what it is, because really the connotation when people hear palliative care, they assume it's simply end-of-life care. And, and right. really, well, Why palliative- don't we
2: talk about that? Let's go ahead and just jump right to that. Why don't you tell sure. us what palliative care is? What does it mean? Who needs it? All of that.
4: Yeah, um, so palliative care certainly is really a newer specialty in healthcare in that it was introduced to North America in the early 70s, um, and it came out of a movement in the UK founded by a woman who began her career as a nurse, became a social worker after, and then a physician, really out of um, the realization that people were suffering at end of life um, and not just physically. Um, but emotionally, psychologically, practically, spiritually. So she wanted to do all she could to try and alleviate suffering as best she could, which is really the foundation of palliative care, the modern hospice movement. So when it was introduced to North America, that was the, the, the goal was to try and help alleviate suffering at end of life. But because it takes a very holistic approach to caring for the whole person and their family, it suddenly was the realization that, wait a second, the suffering doesn't happen simply at end of life. The suffering or distress can happen and begins at the time of diagnosis, whether someone's diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, at the age of 20 or 30 or 40 or 70. How that diagnosis impacts them physically, mentally, emotionally, practically, spiritually starts then. So how do we best support people from the time they've been diagnosed as well as caring for them? And their families, Um, not just from one discipline like myself as a social worker, but we really take a team approach because there's so much, a multitude of disciplines blending their specialties together can offer an individual and family from time of diagnosis. So that's been the evolution of palliative care is that sadly, many people don't get referred till end of life. And there's a lot of suffering or distress that happens Mm. long before. And that's what a palliative approach to care is, is how do we support people and their families from time of diagnosis?
2: So I can see where the controversy kind of comes into that because, like you said, it started as as end of life care, and so and you're right. A lot of people still think that's exactly what it is, and you know, if we start talking about it, it's like, am I dying? What's going? You know. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a really great way to look at that because the suffering does start. I mean, Sharon, you remember your first day of your diagnosis, and I certainly remember mine. You know, and it and for some people, it takes a long time to recover from that moment and -hmm. just trying to get through all the chemo and the radiation and all the different you know things that you need just to get past this first step is very very hard well so and, and your,
1: it depends on your point of reference when i was diagnosed i was just had just turned 40 and every person that i had known who'd had cancer was way older and had all passed away from it. So mm-hmm. I thought I was dying. <laughs> so mm-hmm. luckily, my cancer was, was uh, diagnosed reasonably early. I was stage two. But at the same time, you know, you couldn't prove it by me. I mean, I just, that was my point of reference
2: and you were the first one in our circle to go through it so none of us really had a exactly. clue how to how to support you so unfortunately and sadly you spent a lot of that time more alone than you should have and which is why we started breast friends initially because we didn't want people to go through this alone and it's a learning process i was sharon's friend at the time elizabeth but i hadn't gone through it i didn't know what to do either so i was kind of that that friend that, that said, let me know if you need anything. but mm-hmm. And I meant it. I just didn't mm-hmm. know what to do. So she ended up going through quite a bit of her journey by herself. And I I felt bad about that. And then when I was diagnosed three years later, you know, she knew because she'd been there, she knew what to do to help me. And it was mm-hmm. four years after that that we started Breast Friends together. We figured there was a there was a hole there and we needed to fill it. So, so we're, before we have to go out to break, I wanted to ask you about the Legacy Project. What is What is that? Yeah,
4: um, so that's something that I think probably is a, a big answer.
2: Okay, <laughs> and if we time. run out of time, we'll just carry it over to the next section. Yeah, segment, so
4: and, no, and, I and legacy work really is—I think—it's something that's important for all of us, right? That we have a finite period of time on this in this world, so. How and what do we communicate to the people we love? Um, And so certainly a lot of my work has been around supporting people at end of life because people quite often get referred to palliative care at end of life. But thankfully, I also work with people from time of diagnosis. So what that means is different ways working with families to communicate their thoughts, their fears, Really, their vulnerability, because so many people, you know, end up, as you said with Sharon, end up being isolated following a diagnosis. You know, they want to protect their family or their loved ones, or they don't know what they need, or they don't know how to ask for that. So legacy projects are really the idea about let's create a safe space to communicate your thoughts, your fears, your hopes, your wishes, um, and look at creative ways to do that. There's lots of different ways that I do that with people,
2: um, families of all ages, and I'd be happy to talk more about that. Great. Well, I, I think it's a great subject. And, you know, we have a, we have a um, retreat that, that Breast Friends does. It's called Thriving Beyond Cancer. And in that, I know there's a, there's this whole segment where we kind of have our patients focus on that. And Sharon does a great job leading that whole thing, um, but it's it's really designed to get women kind of we we do it when it's when they're done with treatment basically mm-hmm. uh, unless they're going to be on treatment for life but um, they have an opportunity to kind of examine where they where they've been but just briefly yeah. and then move forward what do you want to do now going forward and how can you establish your legacy from this point on and you know I think that that's a really important message for for all of us not whether it's cancer diagnosis or anything I think everyone Mm -hmm. wants to leave a good legacy
5: Mm -hmm. just don't know how
2: to start so so I think that's a really great great topic and when we come back from break we'll We'll, kind of, well, just carry on. We actually have a couple more minutes before we go out to break. So well, is there more me, you want let to me say? Just,
1: let me just yeah. say one thing real quick uh-huh. because I've been very interested recently about um, ancestry and the whole DNA and all this kind of thing. And so when I think about leaving a legacy, I'm looking at my ancestors um, that I didn't have a chance to know or or. And and so, this is really a big topic because, as you leave this earth, um, we all want to make a difference, right? We all we all want to leave something behind, and so I think that's it's an interesting uh, topic in general because, of course, it means something different to every person you talk to.
2: Yeah, that's true. It does. And boy, Sharon's been talk about her family every day. She goes, "Found two more brothers."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had kind of a scoundrel as a as a birth father, so <laughs> <laughs> they're popping up all over the place. <laughs> Sharon,
2: I wouldn't have revealed that, but I know you're writing a book about it, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> coming yeah, out of
1: <laughs> one of those things, you know. But
2: uh. <laughs> pretty funny. Anyway. Well, listen, you know what? We are going to go out to break, but let's pick this conversation up on the other side. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute.
5: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit BreastFriends.org and contribute today.
3: When was the last time you felt
1: back to our program we've been talking about palliative care and how to support a family in crisis with our guest elizabeth dowry so where did we leave off here we we're talking about palliative
2: care so yeah, and the legacy project and kind of yeah. how they how they weave together so elizabeth why don't you carry on with that conversation and tell us what we still need to know
4: yeah, um, I mean, I, I think legacy is really, it, it's about how we live each day, right? Um, part of palliative care, we actually have something, and you've got National Healthcare Decision Day. Um, part of palliative care is we talk about having informed conversations with people. Um, certainly, as you both know all too well, you know, you're asked to give informed consent all the time when you have to consent to a procedure. Um, Mm -hmm. But certainly a lot of what palliative care is and, and offers is how do we support families to have informed conversations about what's happening? You know, what do they understand? And this is whether someone's disease has, you know, curative intent or not. So the other thing, much like a cancer diagnosis with all of those myths and misconceptions, you know, palliative care can support people whether their illness is curative or not. Um, and, and because there are so many symptoms um, that people can contend with, whether that's nausea or sleeplessness or anxiety, um, whether it's not even physical, you know, concerns, but it could be around how do I tell my kids or I haven't told my partner or I don't know how to tell my friends or I'm feeling isolated from my friends because I don't know how to reach out to them. Um, or it could be access for practical support. So a palliative approach to care is really you know, that holistic approach from different disciplines to care for an individual and their family, whatever family means to them, whether it's a partner and kids or parents or siblings or whether it's their neighbor. Um, So it's how we support people from time of diagnosis, whatever the outcome of their illness may be. Um, And then the legacy part of that is really, you know, how do we make the most of our finite lives and supporting people whatever point they are in their journey, whether they're newly diagnosed, you know, whether they're, you know, into treatment, um, you know, whether they're facing end of life or whether it means supporting a family in bereavement, how do we explore and how do we create spaces for families to communicate um, thoughts and fears that certainly every family faces when someone's been diagnosed with an illness like cancer. Um, So the Legacy Project, certainly there's lots of variations to it, but really the premise is How do we bring together family to communicate, you know, what they're wondering about or worrying about or wishing for? Because the thing I see most often over the last 20, 25 years is people try to protect the people they love. And quite often they end up isolating themselves, as you already talked about, because they don't know what to say or how to say it. Or conversely, Becky, like you said, with the best of intentions, you say, I'm here for you. Call me if you need anything. But again, what that means for the person, so... So a lot of yeah. the work I do is is creating spaces for families to explore what's important mm-hmm. to them and then
2: having those conversations together. You know, oh, let me ask so a important. question. Are you um, are palliative care, this is really a dumb question, so just help me out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I'm sure that there's some kind of special licensing that you have to get to be to be able to offer palliative care. Is it done through social workers? Is it nurses? Is it doctors? I, you know i've kind of, I'm not really clear on on who can offer it officially. can you okay. can you answer that for me? That is not a dumb question,
4: just to be clear. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I think that's a, <laughs> that's a brilliant that. question. Um, one of the things we have is palliative care is actually everyone's business. Um, here in Canada, certainly licensing is a little different, but but we actually call it a palliative approach to care, meaning that it's something that every healthcare professional can be involved in, um, okay. whether that's an occupational therapist helping someone with their mobility or a physiotherapist. Um, or a pharmacist or a nurse or a physician or a social worker or a spiritual care provider. Like, we all have a role to play in supporting families depending on what that person and family identifies as their concern. So, And it's not, okay. I mean, certainly there are specialists, and I was actually the first um, palliative social worker at the largest cancer center in Canada when we created the program. So I worked at, at an acute care palliative care facility Um where we really offered highly specialized interventions and supports. But now, I actually, after leaving acute care, working in that capacity for almost 17 years, I now have a community-based practice. So palliative approach to care can be offered in the community. It could be offered in the hospital. It could be offered in a clinic. So it really can be offered anywhere, anytime, by any healthcare professional. It's really just about caring for the person, mind, body, and soul, whatever issues they identify following their diagnosis and again whether that diagnosis is curative or not so if it sounds nebulous really what it is is i think a lot of healthcare, certainly with the best of intentions tries to fix problems right whether that's a broken bone or they try to treat a disease the challenge with that is that you know we're caring for people with individuals um, with individual Mm -hmm. histories and preferences and values um So a palliative approach to care is actually caring for the person um, and what they identify as their concern, whether that's a physical symptom or, you know, a psychological, um, you know, concern that they have in terms of coping. So a palliative approach to care is actually something that can be implemented by anyone, anywhere, whether a specialist or a generalist, whatever care setting they happen to be in.
1: Okay. Yeah. So really, Breast Friends offers uh, a a sliver of that palliative care because we definitely work with the emotional piece of it.
5: Mm -hmm. And
1: I think that's an important. You know, like you said, uh, offering people a safe place to mm-hmm. talk about their needs and tell them it's okay to talk about their needs and how they can talk to their, their family and things like that. So there, those are many topics that we cover just mm-hmm. on a little less medical environment Um mm-hmm. And certainly can refer them to their palliative care people. I know the one way, one place I've really used um, palliative palliative care uh, referrals has been probably from the pain management place. Mm-hmm. If if one of my patients is really complaining about having some severe pain, that that is the the one of the roles, isn't it, uh, Elizabeth, too, to to deal with pain. Yeah. Yeah,
4: And I mean, the the symptom management is really phenomenal. Um, So palliative care clinicians, you know, and that's that collaboration again, you know, between all of the different disciplines, Um, but specifically, you know, with pharmacy and physicians and nursing coming together and certainly with the input from other members of a team. You know, what they can do in a really creative way to manage pain that might not be managed the same way by an oncologist or a surgeon, for instance, um, Mm -hmm. but managing pain, but also other symptoms like lack of appetite or sleeplessness or energy um, or depression, which certainly, and I say depression with a qualifier, meaning it's not to pathologize it, meaning, you know, depression is something that's abnormal because certainly feeling sad or certainly feeling, you know, having that sense of, of loss is, is to be expected
1: when there's a diagnosis, certainly like breast cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so what are the most common challenges um, that you witness, you know, for families facing a, a cancer diagnosis?
4: Yeah, I think the biggest one is communication.
1: Um, and, mm-hmm. and quite often it's the,
4: you know, whether it's the person who's been diagnosed or their family member, you know, whether it's their parent or sibling or child. Um, and, and you know, they're saying, I wish I knew what they were thinking. They won't tell me what they're thinking. You know, I feel like they're really worried or they're scared or they're sad and they're not sharing this with me. And then, you know, when I ask, you know, well, what have you shared? Well, mm-hmm. um, nothing. I don't want to worry them is generally the response, right? So,
2: <laughs> we know that one. <laughs> <laughs>
3: right? I,
4: I think like you already highlighted, right, it's that isolation that is inadvertent but so common and coming from a place of best intentions, meaning that they don't want to be a burden or they don't want to worry someone. But what they end up doing is isolating from each other. So you have a family within one household who might be crying separately. I just actually met a... a seven-year-old girl yesterday who, you know, when I talked to her about about how she was coping, she said, you know, I cry in my room because I don't want my mom to know I don't want to worry her.
3: Um,
4: But at the same time, the mom was doing the same, right? So it's, again, gently and compassionately acknowledging what people are experiencing and feeling and trying to create spaces to bring them together so they can share and communicate that together.
1: Well, oh, and especially if your if your disease has has uh, gone to that metastatic place, you know where there's so much more in uncertainty. Will they be able to get a handle on this? And I see so many of my patients who who really um, friends and family pull away because again they assume that that person is going to die, and yes, they may. Absolutely. Unfortunately, metastatic disease definitely will take lives, but it may be 10 years, 20 uh-huh. years. I mean, uh-huh. or it could be, you know, three months from now. We just don't know. And unfortunately, I remember having this one particular patient who was metastatic, and she literally woke up. Five years later, it seemed like, and realized, geez, I'm I'm still alive, you know. And mm-hmm. what have I been doing with my life in those five years, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's happens to a lot of people. They they really don't expect to make it, so they kind of stop living, and then they do make it surprisingly to them. And yeah, you're right. It's it's a challenge. Yeah. Um, and their friends yeah. and
1: family don't know what to how to make you know sense of all of it, and neither do they. So.
2: And I think a
4: lot of it is like that grief that you identified, right? Like a lot of people think about grief and loss and associate it solely with the death of someone. And it's all of that grief and those losses that happen from the time of diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's friends and family who step away because they don't know what to say or how to say it, or whether that's the loss loss of a breast after or both breasts after surgery, I know just recently I was seeing a young mom who detected the lump when she was breastfeeding her newborn, and she instantly had to stop nursing, and then obviously was launched into the healthcare system with surgery and chemo and radiation. Mm -hmm. And she was also understandably grieving the loss of that connection with her newborn, the fact that she couldn't and would never again be able to nurse her child. Um, So there's a lot of grief and loss that certainly that's part of my role is to support people and support families as they cope with that as well,
1: yeah, definitely, and and just the grief of um, of dreams uh, that maybe you had for yourself, and and the reality is you may not ever accomplish those dreams or uh, do those things that you wanted to do, or you know, I it, there's just so much, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. everybody handles it differently too.
2: Exactly, you know, I want to I want to take a minute and just kind of put a different, a little bit different spin on this part of the conversation, because I know it feels that way at the time that, you know, our life is over and we can't do anything, but we always like to encourage the patients that we work with, because I think every cancer patient feels that, at least at some point in time. But what my reality has been, and I know it's been for Sharon and many, many others, is that once you get through all the treatment and you're kind of kind of getting your your bearings back straight again, there is so much to to value in this experience you know the fact that it helps you change your priorities and maybe you stop sweating the small stuff and you know we've just had so many women that you know we always talk about the twinkle what's your Mm -hmm. twinkle so even if you're in the midst of treatment find your twinkle what is it that makes you light up when you talk about it
3: yeah and then find
2: and then find a way to do that because that those are the things that, that helped me personally get through my diagnoses, in fact all four of them, was mm-hmm. just kind of looking at the blessings in it. Who, you know, what's this all about? And I know it's hard to see blessings when you're in the middle of something awful, but my life has changed dramatically since my first diagnosis and it continues to change with each one. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of want to put that spin on it. It's not all about losing your dreams. It might be no. postponing them for a minute. And then finding them on the other side of it. And then you might find that your dream changed a bit. And maybe it's even more exciting than it was before. So, I mean, I just
1: want to put
2: that perspective on there because it's not all gloom and doom, even though it feels like it at the moment. So. And, so and you talk just, about certainly, I mean, both of
4: you, you know, are, are testament to that sense of resiliency, um, that in light of the challenges you face that, you know, as you come through it and how you've come through it and who you are now is forever changed. And certainly, you know, what I hear is for the better. Um, and I hear many people say that, you know, and for those that haven't had a diagnosis, they don't quite appreciate it, but they talk about cancer being a blessing or how it's yeah. impacted their lives for the better and changed their lives for the better and that there's so much gratitude you talk about that twinkle right so many of those moments and experiences and people that they might not have noticed before or appreciated so really caring for themselves and caring for their loved ones is very different I actually run um, groups in the community at Cancer Support Center and one of them I run is a mindfulness group so on uh, relaxation and meditation and and very much the focus of that group is just that Um, Mm -hmm. you know finding those connections and making meaning and making the most of every day
1: Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So that's so you, important. Absolutely, oh. absolutely. And you um, you mentioned there was actually four points uh, that you wanted to, to mention. Communication was the first one. What's the next one?
2: But something uh, about think, resources, access yeah, to resources. Yeah, well, I mean, the other
4: thing, too, is that, and then I'm sure you can both speak to it as well, you know, one of the biggest challenges families face when they've been diagnosed with something like cancer is what's available to them and how do they find it. Um, yeah. and, and quite often, you know, it's that emotional piece that's often overlooked. Um, you know, like one of the women I was meeting with just in the last couple of weeks went in to see her surgeon after a mastectomy. And, you know, and certainly there are articles coming out now about, you know, women post-treatment for breast cancer um, or even men post-treatment um, talking about that sense of PTSD. You know, when the treatment is over, it's just suddenly like, uh, what just happened? And my, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> And I'm not speaking Mm -hmm. from personal experience. I'm just speaking from working in the field. But she went to her surgeon looking for support and answers. And the surgeon said, no, everything's healing fine. Your incision looks fine. I don't know what you're concerned about. And she just felt (laughs) like, she just said, you know, I'm trying to ask for help. I don't know what more to say. I'm feeling groundless. And she said, but he just saw me as an incision. He didn't see the emotional impact of how Uh I care for myself. So that system navigation piece about who do you connect with and how do you connect and how do you ask for what you need? I think like many people are shocked that they have to become their best advocate through this when they're feeling most vulnerable.
2: It's true. And I know when, when a physician says everything looks fine, it's just, an, it's just trying to relieve some stress, but the, mm-hmm. what's going on in the head, that's not enough. And so I, mm-hmm. I get that. So let me ask you one quick question before we go out to break here. We've got a couple minutes. How does a person, if, if you're in, your, in a medical setting and you've been diagnosed, you've gone through all this stuff and you maybe heard something about palliative care, but nobody has offered it to you, how do mm-hmm. you ask for it? I, I mean, I true. don't even know if people know, you
4: know, unless yeah. it's being off. But and you know what, it's not mandatory for healthcare professionals to have training or a better understanding in palliative care. It's still elective. Right. Um, right. Now here in Canada, actually, we just passed legislation nationally in our Senate to say that it has to become a standard of care so that more mm. people can access palliative care, but also that I healthcare that. professionals have to have standard education and training. So it's kind of a multi-pronged answer, but uh, that advocacy piece, I think, is true for anything in healthcare. There are lots of things that people could benefit from that they either don't know that exists or that might not be offered to them. So I think that's a bigger question we could talk about a little bit more.
2: I think that's that's so important because you know I, I've gone through this, as I said, four times over 22 years, and I love my doctors, I love my medical team, but I don't think I and I know they have a palliative care doctor on staff, but I uh-huh. don't I don't think I've ever been offered that. So, uh-huh. um, you know, I mean, I guess because we have breast friends, we sort of have that covered anyway. But who else isn't being offered that so that I think that's a worthwhile conversation and Sharon probably a good newsletter article to talk yeah. about. What is palliative care? So maybe we'll ask you offline, Elizabeth, if you'll consider writing an article for us. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that wasn't offline, Offline. was it? Oh, well. (laughs) That was not offline. (laughs) We're going to go on break. um, So stay tuned. We'll be back in just a minute.
5: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit breastfriends.org and contribute today.
3: When was the last time you felt.
1: back to our program we've been talking about palliative care and how to support a family in crisis with our guest Elizabeth Doherty So let's um, we had a couple just uh, just quick things we wanted to cover on the last segment we didn't quite get to so you mentioned the other two points were isolation and coping with grief um, and the loss we kind of covered that a little bit was there anything else you wanted to say about those? two particular points being the challenges
4: um yeah I, I think you know and i appreciate you know you were talking at the outset uh about positivity sharon and and i, I think the biggest thing for me i'm a big fan of brown dr Brene brown um oh and, me and
3: too she- <laughs> oh i love her
4: <laughs> and uh and and she's a social worker which is also you know exciting for me but um you know, she talks about the power of vulnerability, right? Um and, and like this little girl last night I was I was meeting with who's seven who said, you know, I wanna be strong for my mommy. I don't wanna cry in front of her. I think, you know, again, from time of diagnosis, a lot of people end up isolating themselves or feeling that I've gotta be brave, I've gotta stay strong and then, you know, talking about the grief or loss that doesn't create space to acknowledge or express or share that like for instance this mm-hmm. little girl you know who who has a parent diagnosed and yeah um, so so creating, you know, just normalizing that, like asking and exploring and creating opportunities for families to come together to do that. Um, and actually, when you were talking about that legacy project, um, you know, again, much like palliative care, or legacy is kind of, you know, even when you talked about your diagnosis, Sharon, thinking it only happens to older people and they all die, right? Um
1: mm-hmm. well,
4: I was starting to allude to advanced care planning as one of those ideas that how do we talk about what's important to us now um, before it's too late? So one of the phrases yeah. we use mm-hmm. is, you know, it's never too soon, but it can be too late. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that, oh, and that love that. Communication mm-hmm. is a really huge part of that, right? So a lot of people following yeah. their diagnosis won't know how to talk to their family or their kids because they're worried they're going to scare them or frighten them or burden them. So, you know, it's it's I think it's so essential to just normalize that, you know, crying is not a sign of weakness and it doesn't mean you're not brave, and actually sharing mm-hmm. that with your family, you know, takes a lot of bravery for many people being vulnerable with someone else, right? Um whether that's
1: Yeah, absolutely.
4: Child. And and, wow. and and quite often many kids are willing to do that. They just follow their parents' lead. So if their parents are isolating or pretending everything's fine, then kids will take that lead, right? Um yeah, so true. Yeah, so trying yeah. to yeah. Really and and death
1: death is one of these, these 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 topics. Money, sex, and death are still the three tough ones to talk about. And the funny thing is, we all die eventually, you know. So it is something we need to try to normalize. Um, obviously. It's not a a fun topic, but again, a lot of the times uh, when when a woman is diagnosed with metastatic disease, and again, that's kind of their trigger. It's like, okay, is this what's going to kill me? Well, yeah, it could, but again, many times it's many, many, many years, but I tell Mm -hmm. them to get their affairs in order, um, you know, and then live their life, enjoy Mm -hmm. their life, make the memories, and, Mm -hmm. and then... You know, do those things as long as you possibly can. And uh, it, I think it changes their perspective a bit.
4: Absolutely. And and actually one of the projects Sharon knows that I that I do is
1: with families
4: following a diagnosis. Um, and it's actually just, it's I, I call it a hug project, and it's something I learned from my colleagues in the community that work with um, kids and teens. And it's simply taking a bed sheet and... Um, Outst- like making your arms just outstretched and tracing your arms, kind of like making a personalized scarf. Um, but you yep. cut them out, and it's it's like wrapping your arms around someone you love, um, and you can. I'd forgotten it with-
1: about that. <laughs> uh huh. That yeah, was amazing. Knew- In fact, that's what drew me to you because we're all about hugs at Breast Friends. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, we need to talk to this woman.
3: <laughs> well, we keep and talking about can- getting hug
2: counters. You know, every time you hug somebody, you click, and whoever gets the most clicks by the end of the day wins. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, and that hug is something that I use as a tool to bring families together. If someone's been diagnosed and their disease has got curative intent, right, but they just want to be able to talk to, say, for instance, their young kids, So it's like, okay, well, what would you like to make for mommy or daddy, you know, whoever it might be that's been diagnosed. But in turn, you know, the person who's been diagnosed can also trace their arms and make their hug for the person they love. So then that way, you know, say they've got young kids or, I mean, university students or, you know, their kids could be in their 50s. I've done this with families of all ages. Um, And you decorate it so it's like way better than any greeting card you could ever receive because it's a personalized hug where you can wrap your, you know, the arms of your loved one around you and carry it Hmm. with you, whether it's chemo daycare or school or work. So it's a great tool to bring families together and to express verbally but also non verbally what they want to share, you know, highlight that connection, celebrate that connection. But it's also something that I do, and not to come back exclusively to end of life, but it's also something I do at end of life because those hugs and families that I've worked with at end of life are then buried or
2: cremated with them and remain with them forever. Um, I got goosebumps when you were talking about that. That's that's super special. Listen, I'm going to switch gears with you guys just for a minute because um, I don't want to run out of time before this, you know, before we run out of time. But Mm -hmm. I do want to ask this question because I know, you know, we've kind of, mentioned it and and but what happens okay so you're you're working with a patient all the way through from the beginning and then and then their cancer kind of takes a bad turn it goes metastatic how does the palliative care process change for them you know when you're working with someone who you were trying to help cope with kind of the natural part of all this and now they're they've gone metastatic and they're now facing end-of-life issues what changes from your perspective how do you do I mean, that differently
4: Yeah, the timeline is really the only thing that changes um, because the person's always our barometer for everything. So, you know, whatever they're concerned about, that's what we focus on from time of diagnosis. Um, So, you know, whatever that means is important to them, that's what we focus on. And when that changes, I mean, that's where our focus then shifts. So I wouldn't say our approach ever changes, but it's just the timeline can certainly shorten um, okay, but the focus is always on the person and the family, and whatever they identify as the concern is where we focus okay. our attention.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, because that's yeah, it does, and you know, it, yeah, and as, as this whole thing evolves, I'm sure those needs change and get become a lot different. So, um, I don't know, Sharon. There, I know there were some other questions in here that. Oh yeah, um,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think the the
2: the whole grief piece, I still want to
1: go back to that, the grief and the bereavement, because again, um, when, when a woman is diagnosed and, and again, we deal with mostly women. I know you deal with, uh, men and women across the mm-hmm. board. Um, but, um, just that grief piece and especially when they're, uh, dealing with potentially uh, end of life I guess I still want a little bit more kind of maybe guidance for for when I'm working with patients if Mm -hmm. if you have any Elizabeth
4: Mm -hmm. I mean I think the biggest thing is that that notion of trying to be brave and be strong um, and that you know normalizing the fact that it's it's I mean it's of course, it's normal to be scared or to be worried or to feel sad or just to feel that profound sense of loss, knowing that whether someone is looking at, you know, a, a timeline of years or months or weeks or days, you know, how do we create spaces for families to come together to express what's important to them? Um, mm-hmm. And that's a really important part of the grieving process before someone dies because people, I mean, studies show us for people who aren't supported before someone dies, they have a much harder time adjusting and coping afterwards. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, certainly as a social worker, I have a really, um, my focus is is to really create spaces for families to share their thoughts and their feelings and their worries, um, which is Mm -hmm. actually where that legacy, one of those legacy projects can be really helpful is that we can talk and share, um, you know, about what they're worried about and and communicate with one another um, instead of isolating when, especially when time is so short.
1: Yeah, I know one of the things that I do is I talk a little bit about regrets. Um, You know, is there something that you can do to alleviate any regrets that you might have? And whether that's a relationship that's gone sour that you might want to um, recapture before that um, uh, the end of life situation happens. And, you know, just opening up conversation, I think, is the biggest thing, don't you think?
4: Absolutely. And I mean, certainly yeah. whether I'm working with a child or an adult, it's certain questions like, is there something you're wondering about? So questions they might have, is there something mm-hmm. you're worried about, meaning fears or thoughts? And is there something you're wishing for? You know, whatever that might mm-hmm. be they're hoping for, whether it's reconnecting, like you said. Um, so wonders, wishes and worries are a really, you know, important conversation to have with people regardless of their age or stage in their illness. You know, how do we best support you right now? And what's important to you and who's important to you? And how do we create space for all of that?
1: I love that. Wonders, uh-huh. worries, and what was the last one? Wishes. 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 Okay. Wishes. I love that. Yeah. Okay. I can see an article about that, too. <laughs> yeah, I, can. I can as well. For sure. Yeah. <clears throat> And so how how do people seek support like this? Because again, uh, our our ladies, I mean, we, we really have to like almost teach them how to ask for for help or mm-hmm. give them permission to ask for help many times. And so mm-hmm. I would imagine it would be similar to <laughs> to what we end up doing.
4: Yeah, that's exactly it. And when I run support groups in the community for women diagnosed with breast cancer, it's exactly that. It's that, you know, especially when you're feeling most vulnerable, hoping someone's going to turn to you and just say, here's answers to questions I think you might have and here's resources that you might need in the future. That just doesn't happen by and large. So a lot of it is, like you said, trying to empower and educate women about, you know, Here are some of your choices, and this might not be offered to you, but, you know, it's okay to ask, Um, and, you know, if you feel like your questions aren't being heard or you don't have time to answer there are other avenues to ask or, you know, other people to talk to. So a lot of it is trying to empower people to advocate for themselves when they're feeling most vulnerable, I think, is the biggest realization for women as they go through this. Um, and that's the biggest thing I see in peer support um, in, in support groups I run for women diagnosed with breast cancer. When, like you and the work you do with breast friends, when they connect with other women and say, okay, you understand and, okay, I was feeling or thinking that too. It's so good to know this is part of your journey as well as mine.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, that's great. So so how can people find out more about this important topic?
4: Um, which part? The communication, <laughs>
1: the resources, uh, I think just palliative, palliative care. <laughs> yeah, I, we've covered a lot. Yes, we have.
4: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I know that you're in the States, and certainly um, there is a National Hospice Palliative Care uh, Organization in the States. That certainly, I think, would be a great um, place for people to turn to in the States. Um, And and here in Canada, we have the Canadian Hospice Palliative Care Association. So, I think those are really good starting points for people um, because it means you know, different things to different people in different places as well. Um, But as the national organizations uh, in both the States and Canada, I think those are good starting uh, points for people. And they really represent a number of different healthcare disciplines and professions and programs. Um, So I think that's a good start to demystify what it is um, and the, the full breadth of what palliative care offers again to demystify. Much like when people hear cancer, it doesn't mean that someone's going to die. Palliative care is about how do we help you and your loved ones to live well and feel supported today.
2: That's thank so you so great. much, yeah. That is yeah. so great. Well, this has been a wonderful show, lots of amazing information. And, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking time because, obviously, you are a very busy woman. Um, <laughs> but for you to take the time to, to call into our show today and, and visit with us has just been really amazing. So do you have a website if people wanted to learn more about your um, clinic that you work out of?
4: Absolutely. Um so okay. my uh so my name is uh, as you said Elizabeth. It's not my first name, so my website is actually C. As a first initial of C, it's Christine. My parents didn't want me to use my first name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> C Elizabeth Doherty Consulting. And I believe um Sharon had mentioned that my information would be on on your website. But yeah, yes. my last name is D O U G H E R T Y. And I'm here in Canada and I provide support across Canada um, but mm-hmm. also locally in the community that I live in, so and you're in, you're in Toronto, right? Just outside of Toronto. So I provide yeah. uh, support in person across the Toronto area, and then I provide online and telephone counseling across Canada.
2: Beautiful part of the country. I spoke up there a couple years ago, and it was I just love that that neck of the woods. So um, very beautiful. Well, I want thank to thank you. you again for being on our show. Um, for our guests that are listening, I want to encourage you to you know, look at this subject. It's really important. And also take a look at the Breast Friends website. We're at breastfriends.org. There's a lot of great information on there, questions to ask your doctor, all kinds of things that you might find helpful. We also have an app. That's um, available in the Google Play or App Store. It's It's just the Breast Friends app. And we will be back next week. Until then, remember, there's always hope, and we're here to help you find it.
0: Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hennepin and Becky Olson again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. There is always hope and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time.